Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff, and I'm privileged to serve as one of the pastors here with the Hallows Church. Pastor Andrew is away this weekend. He's uh, in Texas preaching uh, at one of our partner churches there, Brazos Point. You may be familiar with them. They've uh, served us well from the very beginning, and so it's great that Andrew can go and serve them as well this weekend in that way. And that, what that means for us is that we're going to open our Bibles together uh, this afternoon to John chapter 5, the passage we heard just a few mo- moments ago. Now, if you were with us last week, Pastor Andrew, we, uh, he talked about God's love, the love of God, and it's, it's incredible, really, to take in and to reflect upon all the various ways that uh, God has shown his love and his kindness towards us in Jesus. God is love, but we know that God is not only love, of course. We've also been looking at other of his attributes and aspects in this sermon series called Drawing uh, Near. We've looked at his beauty, and we've looked at his grace. We've looked at his uh, providence uh, as well. And what we're going to explore today is an attribute of God that not too many, that that too many, um, to many people can be quite troubling, not only outside of the church, but also inside as well. We're going to look today at at the wrath of God, the judgment of God, and this week's artistic contribution is from Lily Hunter, and as she As she reflected on today's passage and this attribute of God, the judgment of God, she was inspired to create this piece that's over uh, to my left. So we thank Lily very much for that. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, what's happening is in this sermon series where we're kind of stepping back and looking at uh, God from various angles and perspectives, we're looking at different attributes of God. Uh, Each and every week, an artist within our faith family is... uh, Reflecting on the passage, reflecting on the attribute, and then creating a work of art to contribute to this series, to a growing collection of pieces of art uh, for this series. And so that's, that's what I'm talking about with regard to that. Now, needless to say, um, wrath and judgment are not the most popular uh, attributes of God that people like to think about and t- talk about. If you go into Barnes & Noble or you get on Amazon and you look at the huge number of books on spirituality and religion, and you see all sorts of titles talking about the human soul. You see chicken soup for the soul, care for the soul, but what you don't really ever find there is a bestseller called Judgment Day for the soul. The truth is nobody really wants to hear about it. In our culture today, in fact, the idea of a God of wrath and a God of judgment is perhaps one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. Many would say that a, such a concept is uh, primitive at best and um, dangerous at worst. Even inside many churches, many Christian churches, a certain pressure is felt to minimize this doctrine or apologize for it or, or get rid of it altogether. And some churches have done that and others are doing that. But the only way that you can really do that, the only way you can possibly minimize or dismiss the doctrine of divine judgment is really by picking and choosing which parts of the Bible you're going to take seriously and which parts you're not. And that's no different at all, really, than putting yourself in authority over the scriptures rather than the other way around. And that's a very slippery slope and a very dangerous slope, too, that we must resist at every turn. Because the truth of the matter is that few things are emphasized more strongly and more unapologetically in the Bible than 
the reality of God's work as a judge, as a judge of retribution over the whole human race. In fact, there are more references in Scripture to the wrath of God, to the judgment of God, than there are to the love and the kindness of God. And some may say, well, yeah, but that's mostly in the Old Testament, right? Not so much in the New. You see, some people seem to think that as you move from the Old Testament to the New, that God's wrath kind of fades into the background as the God of judgment in the Old Testament gives way to the God of grace in the New. But that is not really the case at all. Because when you survey the Bible, even in the most cursory of ways, what you actually find as you move from the Old Testament uh, to the New is that this theme of divine judgment far from being reduced, is actually intensified. And there is a single person who we find ratcheting up the intensity. There's one person in the Bible who speaks more about judgment and hell more than anybody else, everybody else put together, in fact, and that person's name is Jesus. This Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the The Lord of love is also the same Jesus who says in no uncertain terms that a day of final judgment is coming, and you need to to ready yourself for it. In fact, I hope to show you today why you and I and every person on this planet needs this. We, We need deeply a God of judgment. We need the coming judgment day spoken of in this passage far more than we may realize And so let's draw out three points about the judgment of God based on this passage today, John chapter 5, verses 24 to 30. Three points, why we need it, what we're told about it, and how it changes us. First, why we need it. One of the most common objections to Christianity and to the God of the Bible is how can a God of love, how can a God of love and forgiveness also be a God of wrath and fury and judgment Aren't those incompatible attributes? Don't they contradict one another? You can't really reconcile those, can you? There's a Christian theologian who was born and raised in the former Yugoslavia. His name is Miroslav Volf. And he's actually a professor at Yale University now where he's the founder and the director of what is called the Center for Faith and Culture. And Wolf used to object to the God of the Bible on these same grounds. He used to reject the concept of God's wrath because to him... The idea of an angry God was barbaric. It was unworthy and unbecoming of a God of love, he thought. He reasoned that if God is loving and perfect and powerful, surely he would not need to judge anyone. Surely he could forgive and accept everyone. And so Wolf pushed back. He rejected this doctrine. He rejected what the Bible says about God's judgment and about God's wrath. But then something happened that changed how he thought about all of this. You see, his country was drawn into a very long and very violent civil war. Uh, It was a war that divided and devastated that country and its people for many, many years. In one of Wolf's books called Free of Charge, listen to what he says about his experience and and how it it changed his view on this. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a result of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. 
And he says, when I thought deeply on this, I could not imagine God not being angry at what was happening. Or when I think about the genocide in Rwanda where 800,000 people were hacked to death in the span of only 100 days, how did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with all of those acts of evil and injustice and with those who were committing them? He says, I used to complain. I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of a God of wrath, but I came to realize that in the face of the atrocities of this world, that the far greater indecency would be a God who did not care and who was not wrathful at the sight of such things. Now, another thing about this, if you're one who may struggle to reconcile the love of God with the wrath of God, are you really thinking carefully and honestly about the very nature of love itself? Because think about this with me. Isn't it true that anyone who loves another person is at times filled with anger and wrath, not, not in spite of their love, but, but because of it? Anybody in this room who has ever loved somebody and seen that person destroying himself or herself surely uh, understands something about this. You don't sit back and say, oh, well, you don't look the other way. You're not indifferent. No, you get upset, right? You get angry because of who they are to you, because you love them and because you want what's best for them. God's love and God's wrath, in fact, they do not uh, conflict with one another. They do not contradict one another. They actually uh, establish one another. The Bible tells us quite clearly that God's wrath toward human sin and evil is grounded in and flows from his love for those whom he created. God looks at the world and sees the violence, the hatred, the trafficking of innocent children. He sees the terrorism, the wars, the genocide, and his wrath is rightly provoked not as some sort of impulsive outburst of uh, emotion, but as a just response, as a settled opposition to the cancer that is sin and Satan and death ravaging those whom he loves. N.T. Wright said this, he said, the biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates and hates implacably, Anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise, Wright says. But our God is indeed good and loving, and it is because he is good and loving that he is also a God who hates and who judges and who will bring retribution in a full and final sense. Now, it is at this point that another objection sometimes arises. Many will say that to believe in a God of wrath and retribution is dangerous. It's dangerous and detrimental to our society. 
Some suggest that if you believe in a God who judges and condemns those who wrong him, you may think it perfectly uh, justified to do the very same things to those who wrong you or to, uh, or to those who don't believe as, as you believe. But Wolf would go on in one of his books to take on that objection and really to dismantle that objection in a very interesting way, I think. He would say that when the God of the Bible is rightly understood and when the doctrine of d- divine judgment is rightly understood, it leads not to aggression or violence towards others. He, he argues that actually the, the opposite is true. Wolf, who witnessed unspeakable violence in his home country, says that for him, the only means of prohibiting violent retaliation against those who have done great evil against him is to believe that retribution is legitimate only when it comes from God. He says this, he says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence towards others requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine knowing people as I do, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. What do you say to them, that they should not retaliate? Why would they listen to that? What will possibly keep them from retaliating? He says, if I do not believe there is a God who will eventually put all things right and deal with the violence and injustice of this world, he says, I will take up the sword and do it myself. And as I do that, I will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there is a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain from seeking vengeance for myself when I am wronged. And so do you see what he's saying here? He's saying it's not the belief in a God of judgment that is dangerous to society. He's saying it's actually the lack of belief in a God of judgment that secretly nourishes the violence and the injustice that has ravaged the human race across its history. Let's talk for a moment now about what we're told about the judgment of God in this passage, John chapter 5, verses 24 to 30. First, in verse 27, we see that there is a judge, and we see who the judge is, and the judge is Jesus, and and the judge, we're told, is coming. In verse 27, it says that God the Father has given to Jesus authority as the judge over all humanity across all of history. We see this in many places throughout the New Testament as well. There's no question about who this coming judge is. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, we see that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must appear, not just unbelievers, but we, and not just some, but all, all of us must appear before him. Jesus, who came the first time as a suffering savior, is coming again as judge. In verse 28, he says, the hour is coming when judgment will be executed. And the Bible refers to this in different ways, the day of judgment, the the day of wrath, the, the day of the Lord. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, it tells us, God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. 
referring to the God-man, Christ Jesus. It says he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Matthew chapter 24, verse 44 says, Be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, that says that the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded. We're told Jesus is coming a second time, and we're told to be prepared. And so are you. Are you ready for it? Do you think about his coming? Do you ever ponder the day of uh, judgment that is coming? I think we need to be, because another thing we see here is that when the judge comes, he's going to be He's going to be assessing you and I and every other person too. In verse 28, Jesus says, don't be amazed, but a time is coming when all people, everyone, everywhere will hear my voice. And then in verse 29, get this, it says, those who have done good things will come into the resurrection of life and those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. And so, friends, when we stand before Christ as judge, we will be assessed according to the things that we have done. We will be evaluated according to our deeds in this life. We see this in many other places, too. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 says that for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 says, He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 says, Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. And then if you go to places like Matthew chapter 25, what you see is that on the last day, Jesus will judge us on the basis of whether we cared for the poor whether we took in the prisoner, and whether we fed the hungry. These passages make clear that God has resolved to repay every person according to what they have done. Both Christians and non-Christians will receive according to their works, which means quite clearly that the way that you and I are living right now, it matters, it matters greatly, and it has eternal implications. And this also reminds us that at the very heart of God's character is that he renders to, to persons what they deserve. And that's what a judge does, right? Weighs the evidence, renders verdicts, rewards good, punishes evil. Now these verses puzzle many. You may be a bit puzzled right now too. And so what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we're saved by our works? That can't be what he's saying at all, because what did he say just a few verses earlier in verse 24? He said, truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes will have eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. But then, quite clearly, down in verse uh, 29, he says that whether you're a Christian or, Christian or not, you will be evaluated based on whether you've done good things or whether you've done wicked things. 
And so is Jesus contradicting himself here? How can it be that as a Christian you are saved by faith and will not come under judgment because you believe in Jesus, right? Verse 24. But at the same time, the promise of eternal life seems to be linked to what you've done. Verse 29. Friends, it is true that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible is unequivocal on that point. But at the very same time, what Jesus is saying here, what the Bible as a whole says too, I think, is that, is that your deeds and my deeds, they matter. They matter greatly because they're an index of, of what's going on inside of you. You see, when I look at the index of a book, it tells me what's inside that book. And in the same way, your deeds and what you're doing and how you're living your life, these things are an index really to your heart and to, to what the gospel is doing in it. It's like fruit growing on a tree. The fruit on a tree does not give the tree life. Rather, the fruit on the tree reveals that the tree is alive. The fruit is an index of life. And so one thing that Jesus is saying here is that on Judgment Day, what you've done in your life and with your life is going to reveal something very important. It's going to reveal whether, you're, whether your faith is living or whether your faith is dead. James chapter 2, verse 17 reminds us that faith without works is dead. Salvation is by faith, that is to be sure, but the evidence of that invisible faith in the judgment hall of Christ will be a life that is changed, a life that is growing. Our deeds are not the basis of our salvation, but they are the evidence of it. Our deeds are not the foundation of our salvation, but they are the demonstration of it. And so, friends, let us feel the full weight of this today. The Bible says in no uncertain terms that the people who are saved on Judgment Day are not simply those who say they believe, but those who actually believe. And if you actually believe, it changes your heart, and it changes your life and the things that you do in it. The sign of a living faith is fruit that is growing. And so look at your character. Look at your deeds. Are there signs of life? Are there signs of growth? Christian, are you growing in love and patience and kindness? Are you growing in humility, integrity? Are you growing in generosity and self-control? Friends, we do need to look at our deeds because the judge intends to. Now, this may be causing some of you to squirm in your seats a bit, and it should. It certainly does me, especially when I think about how much more I could be doing and how much more I should be doing as a Christian. But at the same time, it is critical that we keep in mind always that you can't see the fruit on a tree grow by watching it by staring at it or by obsessing over it. Fruit grows slowly. It takes time. Sometimes you have to be patient. You need to tend the soil well. You need to keep it well watered. You need to be diligent. You need to be patient. And growth will come as you look to God to give the growth rather than trying to manufacture it under your own strength. And you will need to check in on things at different times over time in order to actually see the progress that's being made. 
And so you should be asking yourself ever so often, am I more loving today than I was last year? Am I more patient? Is my heart softer? Is my gratitude deeper? Are my concerns broader? And how are those things manifesting themselves in your life? Look at your deeds, the judge will. You're not saved by them, but you are revealed by them. And did you know, Christian, that you will not only be revealed by your deeds on that final day, you will also be rewarded for them? I don't have time to unpack all of this really, not on this day, but the Bible does teach that a second reason that the judge is going to assess your good works on that final day is so that he can repay you for the good that you've done with certain heavenly rewards. And that's a pretty wonderful thing to think about. But our deeds, they matter. They matter on more than one level. And so are you paying attention to them? We need to because the judge is. Another thing we see about this judge is that his judgment is just. That's what Jesus says in verse 30. He says, my judgment is just. And what we see in this passage is that when this judgment day comes, there are two and only two outcomes. There are two and only two possible trajectories for the human soul beyond this life. You see it in verse 29. One is being raised to life. The other is being raised to condemnation. And that word condemnation quite literally means separation. And so really the first possibility is life with God forever. And the other possibility is being apart from God, separated from him forever. And that's what hell is really. Separation from God, the, the actual pain of judgment day and the hell that follows is one, it's one of separation from him. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says that when I come again, I will be separating people from one another and I will be separating some from myself. He says the weeds will be separated from the wheat. In Matthew chapter 25, he says the sheep will be separated from the goats. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, we're told that the penalty on that final day will be one of, of being away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Separation from God, separation from the only true source of love and life and light, and that, that is what hell is. The imagery the Bible uses for hell, things like fire and darkness and torment, is telling us what it's like to be separated from God. And it's meant to tell us that being separated from God is far worse than we can imagine. But the Bible also tells us that hell is self-selected. Romans chapter 1 and elsewhere tells us that God gives people over to what they want most and to what they desire most, and most people don't want or desire God. In John chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle John says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light. The Bible says that the more a person says, I don't need you, God, I don't want you, God, I want to do my own thing, God, the more likely that God, in his justice and wisdom, will finally say, very well then, if you say so. God ultimately gives people what they want, whether they want to be with him or whether they want to be apart from him. And his readiness to respect 
human choice in this regard. It can seem troubling to some, but is he being unjust in any way? He gives people what they choose in all its implications, nothing more, nothing less. C.S. Lewis says hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. He says there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, your will be done, God, and those to whom God in the end says, very well then, may, may your will be done. So we talked about why we need this doctrine of divine judgment. We've uh, talked about what we're told about it in this passage and others. Let's talk for a moment now about how it changes us. It changes us, I think, as we consider the fact that you and I as Christians were living in between two judgments, right? And it changes us as we consider what that means for us and for our futures. In verse 24, Jesus talks about how he was sent In verse 30, he does it again. He says, I seek not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so who sent Jesus and why? And what was the will of the one who sent him? John chapter 3, verse 17 tells us that the Father did not send the Son into the world to condemn or to judge the world, but to to save the world through him. And so when Jesus came the first time, he did not come to bring judgment against us, though we certainly deserved it. No, he came for another reason. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a courtroom, but if you have, it's hard not to be a little intimidated by the judge. The judge really never sits at a desk down on the level of the defendant, never eye to eye. No, the judge is always sitting up high, looking down, right? The defendant's down low, looking up. And it's no different with this judge, Jesus, really. He was seated on high, looking down. He was looking down at the mess we had made of this world and the mess we had made of our lives. He was looking down uh, at our self-centered and our self-serving hearts. And he could have rightly and justly given us exactly what we deserved, which is the judgment of eternal separation from him. But this judge of ours, this Jesus, he didn't stay on high looking down. He didn't give up on us when we had no standing whatsoever before him. He didn't didn't remain distant or detached or disinterested because of our sin and our rebellion against him. No, this judge, he shocks everyone. This judge, he steps down from the bench when he didn't need to. And in the most astonishing act of all human history, when this judge stepped down from the bench... And when he moved towards us, he didn't come to bring judgment against us. No, this judge came down to take on our judgment for us. This judge, in fact, came to be judged in our place for our sins so that by faith, you and I would never again have to be. Jesus said, I'm not going to stay above you. I'm going to get down below you. I'm going to take on what you deserve which is God's anger and wrath because of sin, and I'm going to give you what I deserve, which is God's love and God's delight. And that's exactly what went down at the cross, and that's exactly what happens when you put your trust and your faith in this Jesus. And once you do that as a Christian, you see your judgment is in the past. The trial is over. The verdict is in. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 24 tells us that very thing, that your judgment is behind you. Jesus says, anyone who hears my words and believes will not come under judgment, but will pass from death to life. 
And so, Christian, your judgment is behind you. Why? Because the judge was judged for you. Christianity is utterly unique in this respect. It diverges from every other religion or system of spirituality that tries to give us an answer to the question of of how do we get right with God. Every other system says it's up to you and what you do. But Christianity says it's up to Jesus and what he's already done. Friends, you and I can face the future judgment day without coming under judgment ourselves because we have trusted in the past judgment that was poured out on Jesus for us. And so have you trusted that? Have you heard him and have you believed? I hope you'll hear him and I hope you'll believe him today if you haven't already done so, so that your judgment day can be put in the past behind you and so that your hope can be put in the future ahead of you. Finally, and very briefly, the fact that we're living in between two judgments, in between the the future judgment and the past judgment, judgment, it means that there is a certain uh, present tense reality to the doctrine of judgment too. And as we consider it rightly, it can really fuel our lives, I believe, in some very powerful ways. For one, it frees us from the need to make ourselves judge and jury over all those around us. It frees us from the need to set everyone straight who disagrees with us or disrespects us or offends us, or even wrongs us greatly, because we trust that in the end, on the final day, God will set right every wrong, every injustice will be punished, every evil will be judged and and paid for. In fact, God says, don't do any of this yourself. He says, leave it to me. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will, I will repay, says the Lord. And if you leave that to him, if you allow him to do that, it can transform the way you live. If you trust that God will repay and that you don't need to, it enables you to be a gentle person, a forgiving person, because there's no need to pick up the sword, literally or figuratively. There's no need to get sucked into the endless cycle of judgment and retaliation and violence that infects this world around us. Instead, you can leave it to God, trusting that every wrong in the universe, every evil, every injustice will ultimately be paid for either by Christ when he died on the cross or at the coming judgment day. Another thing, the doctrine of divine judgment gives us gives us a certain urgency, I think, for evangelism because we know that the hour is coming and so we pursue people, we implore people to repent, we do everything we can to help people to hear and believe the gospel and to put their judgment behind them rather than leaving it in front of them. Finally, the doctrine of divine judgment should make us a people who are both humble and hopeful. It makes you humble knowing you deserved to be judged, but that your judgment is behind you and it was absorbed for you. And so you don't feel superior to anybody. You know that every person on the planet shares a common condition in sin and a common need for the grace of the gospel. And it makes you hopeful too, knowing that no matter what kind of setback you may be facing, no matter what type of injustice you may be experiencing right now, it's not ultimate 
It's not the final word. Whatever you're facing, you know it's, it's only a small battle in a war that's already been won. And so you have a certain calm, a certain humility, a certain hope, because you know that in the end, all that is good and right and just will inevitably prevail. And so do you believe that? Are you living as if that is true? The doctrine of divine judgment, do you think about it? Are you practicing it? Because if you're pressing into its full implications, it's like an engine that can empower your life right, near, right now in the here and now, in the present, as you live in between the past judgment and the future judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for this time together. Thank you for teaching us and challenging us today. Would we see you more clearly today? Would we see you as more beautiful today in light of who you are and what you've done? Jesus, thank you that you've loved us uh, so well. That it, thank you that you loved us enough to step down from the bench, to become like us in every respect, and to be judged in our place for our sin. Thank you that we can look forward to the future knowing that our judgment is in the past because of what you did. Would you allow these things to stir our hearts and change our lives today in Jesus' name? Amen.